This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're going to talk to Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rodelfish of the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center. The blue crab is a highly sought-after shellfish, but derelict traps can be a major strain on the coast and cause more than just environmental problems. So this morning we talked to Eric and Alyssa about uh, the blue crabs and how you can get involved with the derelict trap reward program. Dr. Major is here, ready for your pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear about your brushes with nature. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Just a reminder, if you missed the Creature Comforts broadcast on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, everyone. Let's uh, start with Libby. Libby, what's uh, been going on in your yard lately? Oh, I've been watching. Um, it's uh, a bird that I, I like to see every winter, and this year, I realized the other day I had not seen them until now, I guess because I was gone. Usually about in November or December, we'll start getting our uh, yellow-bellied sapsuckers back in the state. And um, it's a, a really neat little um, woodpecker, and um, it's one that migrates. It's the only, uh, only one of our uh woodpeckers that i know of that don't nest in the state and i'm pretty sure it's the only one that that migrates in and out but anyway it's a really fun bird if you ever see a tree that has a very neatly tended little rows and rows of of tiny little holes almost looks like it's been done with a typewriter or something those are yellow-bellied sap sucker holes and they are making sap whales other species, in fact, some places, I've never seen one do it, but they say hummingbirds will go to those holes and, and drink a little sap with them. And, but I've never seen a yellow-bellied sapsucker do what I saw him doing yesterday. He was on my camellia bush, I have a lot of red camellias blooming, and he was going from one blossom to another and tearing them all up. Just pretty much completely decimating him. It looked like he was eating a part of it, but I couldn't be sure. So um, I watched for quite a while as he tore up several of them. And then, I mean, I do know it's a he because it's got red forehead and a red chin. And uh, so that's a, a, a sign that it's a male. This one was immature because he was not a, a real contrasty black and white. He still had some brownish kind of mottled places on him but anyway it was a lot of fun and so um i went to um cornell's all about birds that we've talked about online and they say that sometimes they eat blossoms or buds in the spring in the places where they nest so i wonder if he really wasn't eating part of my flowers he probably could be but it's also possible he was looking for insects because they do eat insects 
So anyway, yellow-bellied sapsucker, it's a great winter bird to look for. They'll probably be leaving in the spring when a, a lot of our other birds are migrating in. They're going to go further north to nest. But it's a fun bird, and um, I'll look for him again today. All right. Uh, yesterday was Inauguration Day for the new president and vice president, but also for the new first pets. President Joe Biden will be bringing his German Shepherds champ and major to the White House. This marks the return of pets after four, a four-year drought. President Trump and President James Polk are the only two presidents in history to not have pets at the White House. Our producer, Java Chapman, was doing some research and came up with this interesting fact that in November of 1926, a man named Vinnie Joyce of Nittayuma, Mississippi, sent President Calvin Coolidge an unsolicited plump raccoon for his Thanksgiving dinner. Instead of eating it, though, the president adopted the pet and named her Rebecca. So I think that might qualify as maybe one of the stranger presidential pets. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Major. I could sneak in a question uh, from me first before we get to a couple of emails here. And that is, as you know, brought my cat in for his annual checkup this last Saturday. He uh, did well, but he seemed to be a little bit uh, sleepy and lethargic on that first day. And I'm wondering if sort of like humans with vaccines, if maybe when our pets get shots, sometimes they feel just a little bit off for maybe a day or so before they recover. I think it's probably true. Uh, And sometimes... Just like with people, they they can have run a little fever, be a little bit out of sorts, uh, and not unusual for a cat or a dog maybe to not be normal back until the next day. Most of them, though, really don't. They don't slow up. That's been my experience. But uh, yeah, your cat your cat checked out good. He's he's a good cat, and I think he's at a good weight. Uh, he's not overweight, which is a plus. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I know he likes treats and he likes what he can get. I, I know that. But uh, my cats have been on a strike lately. They, they're they not eating a whole lot. So uh, yesterday I mixed just a little bit of dog food in with their dry food, and they went for it. So anyway, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't really recommend feeding them dog food, but the cats are funny. They, they may take what you don't suspect. Lily, back to the sapsucker. Uh, that one tree that has, if, if you counted them, you probably would go crazy. But it all is all the way from about three or four feet from the ground, probably another 20, 25 feet up. And it's completely ringed uh, with the little holes. Hmm. And I suspect, too, that the, those little uh, the sap, depending on the tree, but the sap probably attracts insects as well. So they, yes. they, feast, they feast on those, I'm sure. And uh, yes. it's, it's really amazing to see a tree like that, though. Not just a few of the uh, little holes, but just literally thousands. And, Troy, was that a maple? That's the Maples are their favorite tree, and they tend to get um, covered up with the holes. So I'm wondering, birches and maples, but maples was, are the ones that I've noticed. It was a large, a large uh, birch. Uh, okay. Yeah, and that was that was what it was. Anyway, well, that's, it's real interesting, and I've always been amazed at that tree. I always stop and look at it when I'm out walking or looking, and it, they really they really do a job on it. And it doesn't apparently damage the tree. Uh, I don't know if the tree likes it necessarily, but uh, it doesn't really damage the tree. I don't think. Yeah, I've always enjoyed watching. It's such an uh, such an, a neat 
process to watch them do that. And I think it's worth maybe a little slowdown of the tree growth. Could be. And uh, I know my cat was feeling better when I heard the sound of something being knocked off the top of the refrigerator onto the floor. So uh, he's uh, back uh, doing him his usual stuff. So like I said, that was the, the sure sign I knew that he was feeling a lot better, that he's he's knocking stuff around again. So and I think my cats probably may have some, you know, like the football players may have a concussion. They tend to run into the window every <laughs> once in a while when they're, they're uh, the ground can be covered with these little fin- goldfinches. And they love that. They're enthralled with it. But every once in a while, they'll make a dash for them, and you'll hear it clump. And it's not the birds. It's the cat <laughs> in its head. Dr. Magic got a couple of pet emails. This first one says, I moved my large plants inside, and my elderly cat is using them as litter boxes. What mm-hmm. can I do to stop her? <laughs> well, several things. One, the first thing that comes to mind is to, to, line, to line that uh, – the plants with uh, fairly fairly large rocks, not huge rocks, but gravel type stuff where there's no soft substrate, and you know the cat probably is attracted to to the uh, planting material simply because there's usually fertilizer in there. There's a smell to it, and maybe even barnyard uh, fertilizer. So the cat loves that, and usually it's fairly soft and pliable. So I would suggest, first of all, to make a rock uh, bed around it, in other words, around the plant, and you can still water the plant and see whatever, but that should deter the cat, I would hope. That's a great choice because I think you're right. They like to have something kind of soft to, to dig around in, and, and putting some gravel or some rocks in there I think would certainly be a good uh, deterrent. Also, as we've said a couple of times, you know, make sure that the litter box that is available is, is always cleaned out well, and uh, a litter box plus one uh, is one of your uh, uh, um, recommendations for that to make sure that they have a place to go where we would want them to. Exactly. Here's another email, and this says, uh, I talked to you on air once about my 16-pound dog throwing up after walking at his pace. He sen- tends to pull a lot. After a while, maybe a mile or less, he throws up. It may include food, if any's in his stomach, but it's mainly a pile that looks rather like whipped egg white. After he throws up, if we keep walking, he may do it again uh, with a similar, uh, uh, you know, more whipped egg white, it says. Uh, he may want to lie down flat on his stomach. Uh, any insights would be appreciated by this dog owner. Well, it sounds like he must pull a lot. Did they say that in the thing? He, he pulls when he's walking with them. And a lot of the dogs, you know, they, they're excited about getting out and walking, and you have to keep up with them or pull them back a little bit. So he may be getting some irritation in the trachea or esophagus, and uh, a lot of times they'll throw up. And it does, I hadn't thought about whipped egg white, but it, it looks like foam, uh, froth, and a lot of times they will throw that up. Sometimes, if, and dogs are very efficient about throwing up. They have no, uh, what should I say, reservations about throwing up. And they will throw up, and a lot of times they'll throw up food or bile, which usually is yellow if they have an empty stomach. So maybe, I don't know whether they have a harness for this dog or not, maybe a harness would work better in this case. Uh, than a leash. I'm not sure which they have. So uh, I'm not sure that I can offer a whole lot more uh, suggestions other than that. And uh, 
if there are any other questions about this little dog, I would suggest seeing your vet. There may be something going on with the pharyngitis or tracheitis, but it sounds like it's a continuing thing. All right, and one other one before our first break. Uh, this is from our, our emailer asking about her cat. Uh, she says, I was also having an issue with deer hunters discarding unwanted parts and wind up with my dogs. I'm tired of the smell and cleaning up deer hair vomit. Why can't hunters discard unwanted parts properly? Libby, any thoughts on that one? Oh, that, I know when I was at the museum, there were a lot of complaints always. And um, it's good to call the Department of Wildlife because it's a very, very rude thing for somebody to do, to clean their deer and throw the parts out somewhere else. It's lazy and it's not good sportsmanship. And I do think you should complain to the Department of Wildlife. And any hunters listening, let's say, remember to take care of your own mess. Uh, uh, when you hunt close to another person's property, it's really a good idea to keep a good relationship with them. And throwing out your deer parts doesn't help that at all. All right. Well said. Uh, we're going to take our first break. When we get back, we're going to welcome Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rodolfish to the show. They're with the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center. We'll be talking about blue crabs and the problem with derelict blue crab traps. You can call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Did contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. To join our conversation this morning with your questions and comments, you can give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We have our guests online, but first let's uh, visit for a bit with our friend Timothy calling in from Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning, y'all. Uh, all props to the Kalanecti Sapodosa studiers. All right. Uh, um, blue crab, one of my favorite animals. That's beautiful, beautiful dancer is what they're called in, in the original. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, um, I'm wondering about an, an, an a insect called asp. At least that's a colloquial name that I grew up with. And it looked like a fuzzy slug on an oak tree. And if you touch it, it stung the heck out of you. And I have not seen any in a good while. That sounds like an urticating caterpillar. And um, Troy, you probably know more about it. I've never heard it called an asp, but I guess a relation to the asp snake. Because um, some of the urticating caterpillars can be very, very painful. Um, They usually have like a, a timed amount of poison it's a strange thing like I've, I've looked up a species before when it's hurt me and they'll say you know it'll hurt for 25 minutes and then it'll stop and sure enough it's like it hurt for 25 <laughs> minutes and stop so yeah, they're, I'm not talking they're, about it's the a, ones that'll drop out of the tree on you when you're in New Orleans you know I'm talking yeah suckers just these, these are very flat and they they almost look like scale on the tree 
You know, they, they on a live oak, they really blend in with the bark. And if you're climbing a live oak tree and you're 10 years old and you're not wearing a T-shirt, you can get your belly just, you know, stuck. Yes. Yeah. It's a very painful sting. All right, uh, Timothy. I, I, I'm pretty sure that is one of the caterpillars. Troy might want to chime in on that. You know, that I've heard I've heard of the term "ass" since I was a child, which is a good while ago. But anyway, the uh, <laughs> the the thing about it is that yes, they do sting, or at least they have a toxin that that uh, uh, does deliver uh, a certain amount of, of poison to your, I guess you call it venom. I'm not sure exactly. But yeah. yes, they they are called aspen. It's kind of a colloquial thing. On this one that you're talking about, does it have fairly uh, large amount of what we would call fur or things like that? Yes, it's completely fur covered. Okay, okay. Yeah. Not like those black ones in New Orleans with it, you know, that are hairy. Okay, but there are there are different uh, varieties, and I would assume that if I'm not mistaken, they do become a moth, uh, which uh, yeah, you know would be, uh, I'd have to look that up to tell you exactly, but yes, a small moth. So, yes, I would, it's, good, it's wise not to touch those things unless you really want to find out how they do. <laughs> All right, uh, Timothy, always good to hear from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's head next uh, to Northeast Mississippi and invite uh, Darren on the show. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was wondering about the yellow belly sucker. What about it? Uh, now I, I must have it confused with, I think, one called a felark or something. It looks like a quail, kind of the same size as a little quail. And it, you know, looks like one has a yellow chest on it. Is that a felark? Mm, no, it's oh, not. You're, uh, uh, is that like yeah. a metal lark? Are you talking about a metal lark? it's a metal lark, but it's definitely not a yellow belly sucker, huh? All right. Uh, in fact, a meadow lark has a much yellower belly than a yellow-bellied sapsucker. Is just kind of a pale yellow wash on its chest. But um, yes, a meadow lark is a absolutely beautiful prairie kind of a bird. It's in grasslands and prairies, and um, it has a, a beautiful bright yellow breast. Libby, okay. one of the things I'll always remember about meadow larks is like after a rain or something like that. The they would be on a fence post, and they have a beautiful little song uh, that they sing. So that's that's yes. And the 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 yellow belly sapsucker is a woodpecker, so they they are definitely yes. different. All right, Darren, thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a couple of guests we're going to talk to throughout the hour. Uh, Our first guest is Eric Sparks. He's the Director of Coastal and Marine Extension at Mississippi State University and the Assistant Director for Outreach and Coastal Ecology Specialist for the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Also on the line, Alyssa Rodelfish, an Extension Program Assistant and graduate student at Mississippi State University. She coordinates the Derelict Trap Reward Program and is studying the economic impact of marine debris on commercial shrimping on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Eric, why don't we start off with you? Tell us a little bit about uh, blue crabs. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for those who are, if you go, if you visit the coast relatively often, especially a seafood restaurant, you uh, get familiar with what a blue crab is pretty quickly. They're a, a, a crustacean that uh, feeds on almost anything throughout the, the Gulf Coast, and they're a popular seafood item there they vary in size 
obviously, but, um, you know, they're pretty much about the size of a hand, I guess, stretched out is kind of a typical adult size that you'll get there. But, yeah, they're really a really tasty and abundant critter. Uh, Alyssa, what about uh, their habitat? Um, so blue crabs, they like to live in brackish waters, so our um, – the Mississippi Sound is really great for them to thrive, and they breed in the salt marshes, which we, of course, have a lot of those along the Gulf Coast. Uh, what is their diet? Their diet, like Eric said, they'll eat just about anything. Um, they're omnivores and bottom dwellers, so they aren't picky at all. They'll eat dead fish and plants. They might even eat... Um, younger, smaller blue crabs if they're hungry enough. Yeah, they're almost like, almost like the raccoons of the coastal waters. <laughs> Eric, what about their lifespan? How long do they live? Um, uh, again, it, it varies, but they reach maturity in about a year in along the Gulf Coast because we have relatively warm and uh, uh, productive waters here. If you compare that to places like Chesapeake Bay, um, where it's a little bit colder, their maturity is typically around 18 months there. So, yeah, they, they reach maturity relatively quick and then, you know, go from there. But, yeah, the age varies uh, a good bit on them, uh, depending on a lot of factors. And you mentioned that they're, they're good to eat. So if uh, I like the crab claws. Is that probably from blue crabs? Um, if they're the small ones you get in the restaurant that kind of have like the uh, reddish blue tinge mm-hmm. to the claws, yeah, those are those are blue crabs. I mean, there are larger crabs that you know the the claws are imported in from other places. That you know, when you think of crab legs and things like that that you get at restaurants, that's typically not uh, not blue crabs, and it's from you know other other places there. But yeah, there's a uh, they have like crab cakes, mm-hmm. uh, crab stuffing, all kind of, all kind of stuff. It's like a flaky white meat um, that they have. It's really good. Yeah, crab crab cakes are another another favorite of mine. So, uh, how old are they when when we eat them? Um, they don't really have a specific age when you eat them. Most states that harvest them for consumption just ask that. You only collect them when their shells are about five inches wide. All right, and then Alyssa, tell us how they're harvested. So people use wire traps. These have been used since like the 1950s. And um, these traps, they sit on the seafloor, usually with a rope or a float attached to them to, you know, show where they are in the water. And the blue crabs, they um, go into the small holes on the trap, but they aren't able to escape. So, And we're going to be talking today about uh, derelict blue crab traps and sort of the problems that they create. So, Alyssa, how, how does a crab trap become derelict? Um, it happens when either fishermen just forget about their traps and leave them in the water, or maybe a boat hits that rope and the propeller, it gets wrapped around the propeller and dra- the trap gets dragged further out to sea. Or um, if 
somebody accidentally does that, they're just, like, improperly disposed of and dumped wherever. So they're, like, traps for those that just sit on the seafloor and become just unchecked. We're going to take a break. Uh, When we get back, we'll continue our visit with Eric and Alyssa about the blue crabs and hopefully dispel some blue crab myths, but we'll also talk about uh, blue crab trap derelicts uh, removal program. So stay tuned. You can call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Two guests this hour from the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center, Director Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rodelfish. So we're talking today about the blue crabs and uh, about uh, the work that they're doing uh, with the derelict trab, uh, trab, crab trap reward program. Um, so, uh, Eric, what kind of problems do these uh, derelict traps cause? Yeah, they cause a, cause a variety of problems, that, um, and in that they're traps, you know. So when they're out there, they're basically built, as Alyssa described earlier, with funnels on either side so that critters can get in, but it's hard for them to get out. And uh, so there's fish. There's um, sometimes in traps that are near shore to uh, coastal marshes. There's like uh, terrapins that'll get in there and drown and all, all kinds of other animals. And that process of an, a trap uh, that's out still, a trap or a net, uh, but any gear that's still out and actively catching things that's not being routinely checked is called ghost fishing, which is kind of a buzzword in the marine debris community. But yeah, it causes uh, a decent amount of issues just because they're traps they're meant to catch stuff and if you're not checking them often then a lot of those critters should stay in there so Alyssa, you know you're uh, studying the economic impact of the debris on the commercial shrimping industry and i could imagine it you know if you you and eric have described this does seem like it would be a a major problem tell us a little bit about uh, the study that you're doing so I coordinate a program that specifically targets commercial shrimpers. It's called the Derelict Trap Program or Derelict Trap Reward Program. Um, legally licensed shrimpers are the only ones allowed to have crab traps that don't belong to them on their boats. And this is because shrimpers typically pull up the derelict traps while they're fishing in their nets. So to alleviate this problem, we offer the shrimpers about $5 a trap anytime they turn one into us. So in addition to that, we did another economic study over the summer where we asked 20 shrimpers to collect and document anytime they ran into marine debris of any sort, including everything from a plastic bottle to a tire, which we got a lot of tires this summer. Um so, yeah, we, we're just trying to find out how this affects 
how much they catch, how much time they spend handling marine debris, and how much money they might spend fixing problems that the marine debris causes. Um, Eric, is there any way to rehabilitate these traps and, and make them useful again? So what happens to these traps that are turned in? Yeah, some of them that that we get turned in are usable as is. You know, they're still good traps that, you know, maybe have been pushed out by a storm or the or a boat prop has cut the buoy off, things like that. Those, we, we keep those, and if they have a tag on them, we contact the commercial crabber and try to get those traps back to them. Some of the traps are uh, maybe a little bit mashed up um, or something like that. And then for those, you know, we can straighten them out, do the same process with, um, but some of them are completely mangled, like cut into pieces and all that. Those, we take them to a, a, a local recy- recycling center um, and recycle the metal associated with those. All right. And uh, can the public uh, become involved in this? And if so, Erica, how can they help out? So the program that um, Alyssa was talking about earlier, the commercial shrimpers program, that one is obviously limited to commercial shrimpers. But there's a um, a public crab trap cleanup. It's led by the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources coming up pretty soon. There's uh, they've actually closed the crab fishery within a half mile of most you know land masses around here. So requested the crabbers get all their traps out so the ones that are still out there right now uh, would be considered derelict they're just abandoned traps and so on january 28th 29th and 30th uh, they're requesting volunteers to come out you know kayak around boat around however you want to get to the traps to remove a lot of those abandoned traps before they move a little bit more offshore um, and kind of you know become more issues with shrimpers and folks that do activities out there as well as the ecological impacts on them. So that's one program that's coming up pretty soon um, regard that's specific to derelict crab traps. Uh, Libby, any thoughts? I know that, uh, you know, we talked about uh, river cleanup and that sort of thing, but also equally important to clean up, uh, you know, the Gulf. Yeah. And, you know, we've also talked about the fact that litter is a lot more than just an unsightly, ugly kind of thing. And when it gets in the water, litter is deadly to a lot of species of animals, whether it's in a river or in the uh, salt water on the coast. But um, it brings to mind to me one of my very favorite um turtles and we we display them at the museum of natural science and i've always loved them are the diamond pack terrapins and that's what he's talking about that those beautiful turtles and they're they're fairly rare they get caught in those traps they're curious and they if there's a maybe a dead fish in the trap then the turtle's going to go in there to get it and it's a horrible way for them to die so it's a i think it's a very important thing to get those derelict traps out of there you know, it's bad enough on the terrapins when it's a, uh, an active crab trap that people are, are watching. But those those crabbers are usually really good about getting the terrapins out so that they won't die. But um, a derelict trap, there's just no hope for anything that gets caught in it. So in addition to the fish, those wonderful little um, diamondback terrapins are getting killed in the um, trap. And, you know, to no end at all. It's just uh, very unfortunate. So it's it's certainly worth anybody who's 
got a boat and uh, wants to get out on the coast and do some good, it would be a great thing to go pick up those traps. Or if you're just out fishing and um, you see some traps during those um, days, the, what, the, the last three days of the month, I think it is, mm -hmm. um, it would very much be appreciated if you'd help with that. Yeah, and the, the locations for those kind of the main hubs where the drop-off points are for that Department of Marine Resources cleanup, which we'll be helping out with um, as well, are in Pascagoula at Point Park, Launch, Ocean Springs, Harbor, and then also Bayou Caddy over on the western edge of the state. So it kind of spreads out across the, um, you know, there's one in each county, one drop-off point in each county. So if you can get the traps there, then they'll be handled appropriately. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, talking with blue crabs today and trying to alleviate the problem of derelict blue crab traps with our guests. If you'd like to join our conversation, there's some open phone lines at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Dr. Major's here ready for pet questions. You can also email us. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So, Alyssa, you told us about the project working with the commercial shrimpers. I'm just curious, how has that been received? Is this something that uh, that has been kind of enthusiastically embraced? Oh, yeah. The shrimpers have, they're pretty enthusiastic about it. They, you know, they get something out, more than just a reward out of it. They get cleaner waters to fish in, so... They really appreciate it, and we've been doing this for over two years now, so they've um, given me a lot of feedback. They've told me the places that they typically clean up or typically fish are super clean, and with all these storms over the past, this past summer, um, there were higher tides, so they were able to fish in shallower waters, so um, it's getting pretty clean out there, and they're all excited about it. But I would imagine, too, in, in addition to the, the effects on, on, on the marine life, is that if if they're in their nets and things, it sort of slows down their whole process. And that's, again, that's the way they make their living. So cleaning up has, I guess, a lot of benefits. For sure. So, um, yeah, they definitely, they spend a lot of time pulling out the traps from their nets. So the less traps there are out there, the less time they'll waste. Um, Eric, tell us a little bit more just in generally about the work of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Yeah, um, so Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant, we obviously cover both states. There's um, there's folks represented or associated with different universities um, in Mississippi um, or institutions in Mississippi and Alabama. We're a small part of that at Mississippi University Coastal Research and Extension Center. But yeah, we, we cover everything from marine fisheries to marine debris to living shoreline um, or shoreline restoration work, community resilience. Um, we're, we're out there a lot doing um, a lot of work, a lot of times under the name of our host university. So yeah, Sea Grant's kind of been in, not necessarily in the shadows, but kind of in the, the back door of a lot of the activities um, that's going on on the coast there but yeah it's a it's a good group of folks across both states that's for sure uh before we go to our next break Alyssa, if you don't mind uh tell us a little about your background and, and how you got interested in in the work that you do so i'm actually from the gulf coast and i grew up with a uh charter boat fisherman as my dad so i've always spent a lot of time out 
in the water. And it's just something that I've felt super, um, I guess, protective over. And I've always had an interest in environmental science. So I graduated from USM in 2018 with a bachelor's degree in geography. And I actually worked with Eric and Mississippi State as an intern throughout my last semester. And so the commercial fishing industry has always been important to me, being from Biloxi. So that's kind of how I ended up studying marine debris and how it affects the shrimping industry. And I guess it's kind of exciting with anybody, you know, you go to college and learn about it, but now you're getting a chance to kind of put that into action and and helping uh, preserve what you said was your, your home area. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a dream, definitely a childhood dream, which is the best part about it all. We're going to take another break. Uh, When we get back, we'll continue our discussion, our guest today, uh, about blue crabs. Uh, You can call in with questions and comments. We've got some open phone lines. Uh, The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guests today are Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rotofish from the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center. We've been talking about uh, blue crab and uh, the work to uh, rid uh, the gulf of some derelict blue crab traps that cause um, kind of economic and environmental harm. Uh, We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. Eric mentioned the uh, cleanup uh, that's going on. We've got a little bit of details on that. It's uh, the Department of Marine Resources. It begins January first. Uh, I'm sorry, January twenty first through the twenty seventh. All commercial and recreational crab fishermen will use the time to remove their own traps from Mississippi's territorial waters. As a reminder, it's illegal to remove traps licensed to another person outside of the approved trap removal dates. On the 28th through the 30th, traps remaining in the water will be considered derelict and will be removed and recycled. Volunteers can remove remaining traps from all state waters during these dates. Uh, then uh, they can dropped off. And again, this is some information that Eric gave us. It's kind of uh, repeating it so folks get the message. Uh, derelict traps, traps dropped off at uh, Point Park in Pascagoula, the Ocean Springs Harbor, and Pleasure Street Boat Launch in Bay St. Louis. On the 31st, uh, all active traps can be returned to closed waters, and crab fishing may resume. If you would like information, you can go to uh, dmr.ms.gov, and you can register to volunteer uh, to help in these cleanup efforts. Uh, Libby, you had something that you wanted to uh, add in. Yeah, I just wanted to remind everybody how important it is that we eat local and we eat local seafood. And um, some restaurants on the coast will have um, a little notice on their menus that they serve local um, 
seafood. But I think that as customers, it's a good idea if you can remember just to say that you prefer local seafood, whether or not they have that on their on their menu. Thank them if they are using local seafood and let them know that it matters to you. Uh, you were asking about the uh, local uh, crab claws, and you're going to get much better crab claws, tastier if you eat those that are uh, provided locally. But if we don't remind the the restaurant people that you would rather have a Mississippi or a, at least a Gulf Coast crab claw than you would an Asian one, uh, they may not think it matters, and then it might, you know, it just kind of slips into to getting something because sometimes those Asian crabs are easier and cheaper for a restaurant to buy. So again, I just remind you to ask for local seafood and to thank your restaurant owner if they are providing local seafood. That's right. It makes sense that if you're on the Gulf Coast there, that fresh seafood is certainly going to be a better deal, that's for sure. Uh, let's yeah, and we have Missis- yeah, we have Mississippi families that, you know, it's an important part of their income um, that they sell crabs each year. So we want to help them out. We've got a caller on the line uh, who wants to share a wildlife experience with us. It's our friend Joey from Tremont. Good morning, Joey. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning, y'all. Uh, two of my neighbor's roosters strutted up the driveway the other day, and there was a little black cat just, just above a kitten size running amongst them. Every time they'd stop, he'd rub their legs. <laughs> And they step over him, step around him, and I never have seen a cat interact with a rooster or roosters like that. <laughs> I just it want to makes you that. wonder if they, he grew up with them, huh? Yeah, well, I'm wondering if that cat's going to grow tail feathers or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope he doesn't Anyhow. eat, a, eat, eat um, a hen or a chick. <laughs> I just want to share that. All right. Thanks, Joey. Good to hear from you this morning. That certainly is an odd pairing, and uh, I don't know who might uh, turn out worse there if there were some trouble, the the, the roosters or the cat. I think it would be interesting uh, to see what would happen. Um, Libby, we've got an email here. Uh, We earlier talked about the yellow-bellied sapsucker, and this says, um, when we had the coldest days with the snow recently, I noticed the chickadees busy in my camellia flowers. I Googled because I'd never seen anything like it. I thought, are they eating the bud or a seed? I found in my search that they're able to eat nectar from the flower. Uh, How wonderful if this is accurate. So you mentioned that was what you had seen in your yard. Yeah, I really do think that's true. I haven't asked any of my more serious birding friends uh, yet, but it it looks like that that's certainly possible that they're getting um, nectar or eating the bud itself. So, um, you know, there's a lot of pollen on those little camellias, and that's unusual that um, you would have something like that available even this time of year. So it seems reasonable that birds would be taking advantage of that food source. So uh, we are visiting today with our guests, uh, Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rodelfish from the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center, wrapping up our discussion this hour about uh, blue crabs. Uh, Eric, uh, our friend Timothy said the scientific name early, and I'm not going to try to repronounce that, uh, but it translates to savory, beautiful swimmer. So uh, are blue crabs good swimmers? Yeah, yeah. They, um, they migrate a good bit from, like, more upstream areas, fresher areas, that's where, like, the big males are typically located. And then they, the females will go up there. They'll, uh, they'll you know, 
do their thing and then come down toward the coast on saltier toward saltier water and you know they'll they'll birth there you know they'll get rid of their eggs they whenever they have um eggs they carry them on the underside of their belly and it looks like um a sponge like a yellow sponge if you see female crabs or just crabs in general they've got like a yellow mass up underneath them there's nothing wrong with them they're just pregnant and about to release their eggs or carrying eggs and so yeah they and I know from being going offshore, a lot of times we'll see blue crabs just swimming around, like pretty far offshore. Um, yeah, and they are pretty beautiful when they swim, and of course they're tasty too. So, yeah, <laughs> I would agree with that. Uh, would you ever see them like on the beach? Oh yeah, yeah. That's where the uh, that's where like I've seen most of the females getting rid of their eggs. They kind of go to beachy areas and they do this little dance they kind of like shake them out um and i've seen just folks vacationing um around go down there and they they just they view that some of them will try to catch them in their their net which we're not supposed to do um and then just look at them and turn them back loose but yeah be careful with them because they will pinch you pretty hard um, <laughs> if you get into those claws so i i definitely would not recommend going and grabbing any blue crabs unless you are experienced with that or you might get a a little chunk of your finger missing. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, also, I think that from I've, they move pretty quickly, so it would be I think would be difficult to even try to get them caught up in a net. Um. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a pretty long handled net, it's not it's not too difficult to get them. Um, but yeah, they, but they will they will scoot. You know, if they see you coming. Um, yeah. So it's it. it I think most folks could probably catch them if they really wanted to, even though we're definitely not supposed to be handling the females. And well, and like you said, I think I'll I'll back off because uh, yeah, I, I I think I was once pinched by some little tiny crab uh, when I was visiting down in Florida in Pensacola, and that was bad enough for me. So that's uh, that's enough for me to back off and let them do what they need to do. Um, is it true that the females mate only once? Yeah, yeah. So they only mate once in their life, and they kind of store um, store the sperm for future uses um so yeah they that's it's a interesting fact about them uh and as we mentioned earlier they pretty much will eat just about anything so um are they sort of help manage the populations of uh, animals in the wind waters that they live in yeah i mean they play they play a big role in the ecology of the coastal environment because they're they're kind of um the the swiss army knife almost of the coast and that they eat a lot of dead stuff and they eat a lot of live stuff too so they they kind of clean up um or break down a lot of larger organisms so that smaller organisms can um, take advantage of them and also you know in salt marshes in general they eat a lot of the periwinkle snails which are known to graze pretty heavily on salt marsh plants some species of salt marsh plants so they they play some of a role in maintaining healthy marshes in that they've reduced the grazer on some of them. That's more dominant. That's more of a relationship on the East coast where you have certain types of marsh plants, but it happens here as well. All right, uh, Eric. And finally, if someone wants to learn more about uh, the work, the, the uh, Mississippi state university coastal research and extension center does, is there a website or can they get more, more information? Yeah, I mean, if you just if you Google coastal.msstate.edu, it'll bring you to all the programs that we we offer along the lines on um, of marine debris. We have a couple other programs that's a little bit easier for public 
to get involved with throughout the state. We just kicked off an inland uh, Mississippi inland cleanup program, and we've had the Mississippi coastal cleanup program for a while. That we basically try to help with organizing cleanup events inland and on the coast, and uh, you know attract a lot of volunteers to help out with that. It's a good social distancing activity to do, and um, yeah, the, there's a website kind of catch-all for that for Mississippi and Alabama. It's NoLitterMovement.com. Um, so you can go there and find the appropriate program for, you know, volunteer for litter, litter removal and be good to go. All right. And as a final reminder to volunteer for that derelict crab track cleanup, dmr.ms.gov. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by generous listeners like you. Today's show was produced by Java Chapman and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield and our guests, Eric Sparks and Alyssa Rotofish. I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.